welcome to the Northwestern Undergraduate Law Journal Speaker Series. Hello and welcome to the Northwestern Undergraduate Law Journal Summer Speaker Series. My name is Kirsten Ha, and I'm an Associate Journal Editor of the NULJ. Today we speak with Professor Joe Mathieson from Northwestern University about press freedom and the relationship between the Supreme Court and the press. So Professor Mathieson, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Kirsten. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. Okay, so let's get right into it. In times of the nationwide Black Lives Matter protests, press freedom is being threatened. In Portland, a judge extended an order that journalists should not be targeted at protests. Yet, this is ignored as journalists were shot at with rubber pellets and fired at with tear gas. What does this say about press freedom in America, and how can we maintain press freedom when injunctions are being ignored? Well, I, I don't think press freedom is un, under uh, a broad attack. And of course, that judge was trying to protect press freedom, trying to protect journalists. And, and I can see how in the uh, hurly, hurly burly of a, of a demonstration, particularly one that has drawn counter protesters uh, and maybe violent uh, participants, it would be hard for people to identify and to, to protect journalists generally. But, um, and, and I don't know of any other case like that, to tell you the truth. Uh, I think that's unique. Um, but even if it's not, um, it's, it's not an evident, an, an, an instance of a, of a trend. It doesn't indicate to me any uh, broad-based uh, effort, violent effort to impede or impair uh, journalism and freedom of the press. However, uh, there's no question that our president is hostile to press freedom. Um, he uh, has suggested uh, some time ago anyway, that libel laws ought to be tightened to allow uh, public figures, public officials like him to sue, uh, which is very difficult for them to do right now. Um, but in that regard, um, an interesting case um, has been brought, a libel case has been brought by Sarah Palin, the former nominee for vice president eight years ago um, uh, against um, the, um, uh, against the New York Times, uh, asserting that they, that they defamed her. Now, as a public figure, as you probably know, um, she has to prove what's called um, uh, uh, actual malice. And actual malice is a somewhat misleading term. It doesn't mean malice in the general sense because malice means threatening. And actual malice as defined by the Supreme Court in a famous libel case is not threatening. Um, it's defined as publishing a known falsehood or publishing a credit criticism with reckless disregard for the truth. And that's called actual malice. And that's a very high standard of proof uh, for anybody who wants to sue the news media for libel, for defamation, uh, damaging that person's reputation. And, and uh, this is one of the great pillars of protection of freedom of the press in this country. Um, I don't know of any other country that has such a high bar uh, protecting freedom of the press. It's going to be very interesting to see how that case proceeds, but the Times uh, moved to dismiss the case, and the judge rejected that motion, saying uh, it was possible for a jury of reasonable people to find 
that the Times had in fact used actual malice in their criticisms of, of Sarah Palin when she was running for, uh, for vice president. So um, that's gonna be a, a case to follow. And that is gonna be more interesting, I think, um, for uh, implications for press freedom in a broad sense, because hardly any public figures or public officials sue for uh, defamation because it's so very difficult for them to prove either that publishing with uh, publishing with uh, reckless disregard for the truth or publishing a known falsehood that's going to be very difficult to prove. Right. So thank you for sharing that. That was really interesting, and I'm sure my our listeners will be glad to hear that as well. And um, compared to the U.S., Hong Kong has this new security law that threatens press freedom by allowing the Chinese central and Hong Kong governments to manage media and the internet. Um, how do you think this new security law will affect press freedom and journalism ethics in Hong Kong? Okay, I don't purport to be an expert on Hong Kong or this new Chinese uh, imposed uh, uh, restriction on demonstrations and protests, um, but it's ominous. There's no question about that. It's worrisome uh, for freedom of the press, but it's just worrisome for, for freedom. And I think for the, uh, for the uh, sanctity of the uh, guarantees that uh, Beijing gave to Hong Kong when it assumed control uh, again, what, 20 years ago. And, um, and I, I think it's very alarming. Now, one of my colleagues here at Medill, Doreen Wiesenhaus, spent 15 years at the University of Hong Kong, and she's teaching a course now in international press law. Um, and she also teaches in the law school, in the Northwestern Law School. And I was just talking to her yesterday, and she has published a book about uh, Hong Kong law, uh, Hong Kong press law, I think. And she said her publisher is urging her now quickly to complete um, a revision uh, so that it can be published before it's too late. Uh, they're assuming or worrying anyway, I guess, that, that it will not be possible to publish that, um, that law, uh, that, that uh, case book again. Um, and so I think uh, if you really want to get into Hong Kong law and Hong Kong press freedom, I strongly recommend that you talk to Doreen Wiesenhaus, who's, as I say, is on our faculty and is also on the law school faculty. She teaches in both places. She is a lawyer, um, also former city editor of the New York Times. She has great journalism experience and, and just came to us a couple of years ago after 15 years at the University of Hong Kong. So she's a real expert on Hong Kong. Yeah, definitely 15 years in Hong Kong. Yeah, wow. Yeah. She must be yeah. an expert. Yep, yep. So now moving on to your book on the Supreme Court and the press, The Indispensable Conflict. Could you tell us a bit about your book and what you found out about the relationship between the two constitutional forces? Well, they're both constitutional in that the Supreme Court is created by our constitution. Uh, it's the only court that's actually created by our constitution. And, um, and on the other hand, the First Amendment to the Constitution guarantees freedom of the press, as well as freedom of speech and freedom to assemble and, and freedom to, uh, 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 
to challenge the government uh, for uh, uh, for abridgment of human rights and so on. Um, all of those things and freedom of religion, they're all contained in the First Amendment to the Constitution. And um, it's kind of a curious story. I, I, I went back to the beginning of the Supreme Court and the beginning of newspapers um, in the late 18th century. And the, um, uh, for a long time, the Supreme Court really didn't have cases um, challenging freedom of the press or testing freedom of the press. So for more than a century, the Supreme Court didn't enforce freedom of the press as we know it today. And even in the beginning of this century, the 20th century, I should say, the Supreme Court, when it did get cases uh, raising freedom of the press, the Supreme Court um, denied it or overruled it. Um, finally, in the, in the 1920s, just about a century ago, the Supreme Court began to show interest in freedom of the press and began to at least think about it. And then um, freedom of the press flowered in the 1930s and 1940s, uh, and, and especially uh, during the tenure of, of Chief, Chief Justice Earl Warren in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, so it was, a, it was a slow development. Um, uh, and freedom of the press was, was really just a dead letter for a long time. And it's hard to figure out why. Um, but that was the way the Supreme Court um, uh, viewed this, the freedom of the press. Uh, it's not very important. Um, and then finally it began to, to, to click. Um, and really the first big freedom of the press case was at the Supreme Court. Um, it didn't come down until the 1950s. So that's odd, um, but in the meantime, I, I was very interested also in how the Supreme Court was covered by the press, uh, by reporters, and um, it didn't get very much attention in the early days because it wasn't doing very much, frankly, for quite a while. Um, and, uh, but under Chief Justice John Marshall, who took office in the early uh, 19th century and, and presided over the court for more than three decades, um, the Supreme Court did begin to flex, flex its muscles in various ways and became um, an important determinant of, of American life as well as American law. And so it was fun to follow that process and to see what, what coverage was given to the court, um, and which wasn't very robust in those early days. And it's understandable because, for one thing, the new, newspapers weren't as robust in those days and, and really didn't. Um, have a very comprehensive view of their responsibilities in, in covering uh, the organs of government. Um, but it's also, it was also a reflection of the fact that the Supreme Court um, didn't handle very many cases and really really wasn't very newsworthy um, uh, in, the, uh, in those early days. Now, of course, um, uh, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, where I worked, uh, the Associated Press have full-time reporters covering the court. In fact, the Supreme, I think this Associated Press has at least two full-time reporters covering the court. And that's warranted because, it, because the court has become so important and it's handing down, down so many decisions in recent decades um, that really matter in the, in the life of our country. Um, so, um, not to bore you with too much detail, but I divided the court the court's work into several different categories 
one of which was dealing with slavery and race, um, which the court has always found difficult, which, which has always divided the court. Um, and again, in, in the earliest cases in the middle of the 19th century, the court uh, sided with slavery uh, and sided with racial discrimination, sided after the Civil War, although uh, three constitutional amendments were uh, adopted after the Civil War, one of which freed the slaves, another one, another one gave them the right to vote, and, and another um, protected their civil rights uh, very broadly. Um, and the court simply didn't enforce those uh, when they were when they were brought up before the Supreme Court in the years after the Civil War. Um, and for many years, really for several decades uh, until the 20th century, um, the court's record on that in, in, in the eyes of our contemporaries these days was pretty sorry. Um, then again, under Chief Justice Earl Warren in the 1950s and 1960s, the court began vigorously to enforce the Bill of Rights uh, the rights of accused persons, uh, accused of, of uh, criminal offenses, um, and the rights of the press and, um, uh, and civil rights generally. So the court has changed a lot. And it was fun to see how the, the coverage of the court has changed over those years. And, and, and it's, it's become, by and large, I think, very good these days. Uh, uh, especially, as I say, the, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, it's good coverage. Um, uh, the Chicago Tribune and the Los Angeles Times, uh, they have the same reporter at the Supreme Court. Um, these people are um, longtime observers of the court. They're good journalists. Um, they reach out uh, beyond the court itself um, to... Uh, uh, to talk to uh, lawyers who are well-informed experts on that subject, but although they're not involved in the case, to get their comments on each decision. Um, they cover um, some cases um, well in advance. They don't wait for it to get to the court after the court accepts the case. Sometimes these reporters will go out in the field and they'll interview people who are involved in the case, the plaintiff who brought the case, maybe the defendant if it's not the government. Um, and um, and I think these, the court's coverage these days is, is really good. It's robust. And, um, uh, and, and I'm thinking particularly of newspapers, uh, Kirsten, um, because um, uh, television tends to follow the newspapers, I think, and television and radio have a hard time squeezing uh, court decisions into, into short, punchy um, uh, uh, stories for uh, broadcast news, um, but even they have some some very good people. Um, um, the woman who covers the court for the for National Public Radio has been doing it for years, uh, and they give her time to explain cases, both before and after the decision. Um, and 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 I think that's admirable coverage. Uh, um, I I wouldn't critique that at all. And and uh, I think she's the best of radio reporters who cover the court. I, in fact, I don't know of other full-time radio reporters. There may be some, but I'm, I'm not aware. Maybe the, maybe the um, uh, broadcast networks uh, have full-time people there uh, for radio, but I, I rather doubt it. Um, um, I think they do um, a reasonable job. Um, the, the broadcast networks I'm talking about now and, and the cable news networks um, they give attention to major cases, but 
I think it's very hard for them with their time constraints and their need in the case of television, the need for pictures. Um, I think it's very hard for them to, to, to do justice to the court. But if you look at newspapers, um, which are uh, still to me the, the backbone of, of American journalism, um, uh, I think they do an admirable job, yeah. Great. Um, going back to your point about how press freedom wasn't really recognized until 1920s, like why do you think this sudden transition of like the Supreme Court paying more attention to press freedom took place, and like why 1920s? Well, uh, they began to talk about civil liberties and more about freedom of the of speech in uh, the 1920s, and it was it was led by two very th thoughtful and highly respected. Supreme Court justices uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes and um, uh, and Justice Brandeis um, they um, uh, were very intellectual very thoughtful um, leaders of the court really um, and they began to dissent um, in the 1920s from cases that the Supreme in which the Supreme Court uh, ratified and confirmed convictions uh, for free speech during World War I, when a very repressive law was enacted trying to prevent speech that was hostile to the war effort in World War I. That was 1917, 1918. And some of those cases came before the Supreme Court for review in the 1920s. And typically the Supreme Court confirmed those convictions, although some of them by today's standards were horrible. Um, one speech put one socialist leader in in jail for 10 years and and uh, um, and, and he didn't advocate uh, resistance to the war or resistance to the draft um, and uh, it was a very modest expression of of, uh, of um, non-support you might say for for world war one and during the war and he was sentenced to 10 years in jail for that single speech and by today's standards, that's, that's awful. Um, uh, so Justice Holmes and Justice Brandeis began to dissent in a couple of important cases um, that actually confirmed convictions for, for speech alone. And then it was in the 1930s, um, the first time uh, freedom of, um, of the press was upheld, and it really wasn't a case involving the First Amendment, but but uh, in that case, um, uh, the Supreme Court um, uh, upheld freedom of the press on other grounds, really, um, without mentioning the First Amendment. And as I said, then it was 20 years later, um, in the 1950s, um, finally, as when Chief Justice Warren took over in 1953, who was a standard you might say even conservative Republican governor of California, uh, appointed by President Eisenhower. He hadn't been a judge before. He'd been a prosecutor, longtime prosecutor and attorney general of California. And then he was, you know, I think in his third term as governor, he was a very popular public official there. Um, but when he came in, he, he brought a very different attitude about the, about the Bill of Rights and about the constitution. And, um, and he, began to, to lead um, as much as a Chief Justice can lead um, the court to take what by today's standards are considered very 
liberal progressive of, of, uh, of uh, decisions, um, a lot of them, as I said, involving um, the rights of people accused of crime um, and uh, strengthening their rights, uh, uh, not creating new ones, but recognizing the Supreme Court, recognizing the Constitution uh, for uh, the freedoms that it was actually intended to uh, to create, um, and uh, and um, and among those was freedom of the press. In a very important libel case um, in the 1950s, the Supreme Court created this actual malice standard, meaning again that a plaintiff has to prove publication of a known falsehood or publication of uh, publishing with reckless disregard for the truth. And, and that's in the case of a public official or a public figure even um, uh, suing for libel for defamation. And, um, and that's a very high standard. And that standard has been enforced. Now, President Trump uh, objects to it. He, of course, gets a lot of criticism from the press. Um, and, um, uh, and he would like to tighten that standard. He hasn't really made any efforts to do that as far as I, I know, because it would be a, a very, a very difficult task, I think, to undermine that standard of actual malice. Um, and also uh, libel law as it applies to other people, non-public officials, non-public figures, in other words, just ordinary citizens, they too have to prove more than they did historically um, because of uh, that decision in the 1950s. Um, uh, and and in other cases decided by the Supreme Court, um, it's uh, it's it's quite difficult now to prove libel. It still happens, um, but the press is aware of the law, and I think generally is quite careful to uh, to uh, to respect it and to obey it uh, in in practice. So. Um, uh, we're, we're really at a very happy place right now, uh, assuming that President Trump doesn't figure out a way to undermine freedom of the press. Uh, he likes to complain about the press. Um, I guess he, and he likes to have them as a, as a target, uh, uh, as an object of his, of his complaining. Um, but if he's reelected, I guess I would be worried about how he and Attorney General Barr, who's in lockstep with him, um, might try to bring cases before the Supreme Court um, that would be designed to undermine uh, freedom of the press as, as it exists. It's a great um, barrier, uh, I think, to uh, suppression or control of the press, um, even to government intimidation of the press. And I don't know of any other country that has such a a wonderful protection for its press, even though a lot of countries pr profess to respect freedom of the press. Um, certainly not in England or any place on the continent, as far as I know, has has uh, protections like this. And I, I doubt that any country in Asia does. I've never heard of it. Yeah, oh, those are some really great points. Thank you for sharing them. And moving on to the last question, since we are a student-run podcast, do you have any last words on law school and finding your path as a lawyer? You know, as, as we were saying before we came on for this recorded broadcast, I think you're smart if you're thinking of law school as an undergraduate to uh, get your antennae up and uh, 
to uh, there's lots of law on the internet in, in these days and uh, uh, to poke around in the law and maybe talk to lawyers uh, or law school professors um, about what they do because as I said there are so many options today for law school a lot of people I think go to law school when they graduate from college at least in this country uh, because they really don't know what they want to do. They're not engineers. They're not physicists or mathematicians. Um, they're liberal arts majors studying anything, psychology, history, sociology, um, uh, foreign languages, perhaps, uh, and uh, which is fine, a fine background for law school. But I think a lot of people go to law school because they don't have a profession in mind and they think well I better get a professional degree um, to face the world and that's okay that's fine but um, but if you have a, an interest in the law I think you might want to be a lawyer um, I think it's wonderful for you to participate in undergraduate law organizations uh, get a flavor of it um, maybe think about what you'd like to do if you do get a law degree um, because there are so many options out there um, uh, but at the same time, um, study what you want. There's no, no need to pursue a pre-law curriculum. I mean, if you've got government courses, uh, uh, and, uh, there's at least one course, maybe a couple of courses in Weinberg on constitutional law. I think that's great. Take those and see how it sits with you. See how you, you take to it, whether you find it interesting and fascinating and uh, something you'd like to pursue further and, and, and more profoundly. Um, I think it's a great, great test of whether law school is, is for you. Um, but otherwise, the, the best way to prepare for law school, particularly the very competitive law schools, is to concentrate on your undergraduate studies and do well because your, your grade point average um, as well as the LSAT uh, examination will be very important in, in um, law school admissions offices. Yeah, great. Those are some really valuable and important points that our listeners would be glad to hear, especially because you are a lawyer as well. And now to wrap up, thank you so much for being with us today. And for everyone listening, we are the Northwestern Undergraduate Law Journal. Check us out at the NULJ.org.